Good morning again. Today is the fifth Sunday of the month, which happens a few times a year. And when that happens, we take a break from whatever we're studying in our sermon series, and I answer some of your questions and do a Q&A. And this just allows you to submit any questions that maybe uh, have been going on in your own life or in your own study or just things that you're curious about. And uh, we will continue in James next Sunday. Uh, but for now, we're doing the Q&A five Sundays in April this year. A few years ago, I was visiting a longtime friend from college, and we had heard that he had uh, lost a lot of weight and become really fit. And so we got to his home, and my family and I were there, and his wife warned us. He said, have you heard? He, he looks really different now. And uh, I started picking his brain, uh, you know, how'd you do this? Why do you do this? And apparently there was a, a really fit personal trainer uh, in their church that was helping him out. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just do what he tells me to do. And I thought about that, and it, it worked, and it, it helped him health-wise. Um, and I thought about that in regards to our Q&A. I could go through all of your questions. I got more than I can answer this morning, and I always push them back till next time, or I'll reach out and just answer them to you personally. Um, but I could just quickly say, no, that's not true. No, the Bible says no, and not explain to you why? So that you have the answer. And if someone were to ask you, well, why do you believe that? I don't know. I don't know. He just said, that's the answer. I don't want us to be like that. I don't want you to just trust me without scripture. And so that's why I only get through a few questions uh, so I can give you uh, the background and the scriptures. And I hope you trust and understand that because of time, uh, some of these questions I can look at 30, 40 verses. We won't have time for that. And so sometimes I'll just summarize things that are doctrinally sound, but maybe not point to a, another scripture in that. So let's jump right in. Uh, question number one is, I do not see the practice of Lent anywhere in scripture, but I've noticed many churches or pastors talking about it and encouraging it. Am I missing something? Um, no, you're not. Question number two. See, see, you wouldn't like that, right? That wouldn't be okay. Um, so, although traditionally thought of as a Catholic practice, there are some Protestant uh, denominations that practice Lent. If you're not familiar, Lent is this 40-day period that culminates or ends uh, with Easter, Resurrection Sunday. It starts with Ash Wednesday. Some of you are familiar with that. It's even in the news sometimes, people walking around with the ash, uh, a cross on their forehead from uh, out of ash. And the idea of Lent is leading up uh, to uh, the, the celebration of Good Friday and Easter, for 40 days you give up something. And the idea is to sacrifice something in some sort of uh, you know, self-sacrifice to worship Christ, to kind of align yourself with Christ. Uh, it used to be fasting. Nowadays you'll hear people say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to smoke for 40 days or give up dessert for 40 days. Uh, not watch Netflix for 40 days, some sort of hobby, some sort of thing that they do that would kind of hurt them uh, for 40 days. And the idea of the 40 days is to reflect the 40 days um, in the wilderness where Jesus fasted as he was tempted by Satan. This can actually be traced back to the 4th century. Some people would argue that it goes back all the way to the Old Testament uh, worship of Baal, and the 
the idea of Lent, the practice of Lent, is not in the Bible. Okay? The problem with Lent is, as with many things that they do, Catholics put uh, some sort of sacramental or legalistic value on it, as if giving up something for 40 days will earn God's favor. And we know in the gospel that's just not true. There's nothing we can do to change our standing or status in the eyes of God the Father. That being said, it's never a bad idea to give up something for the sake of discipline and godliness. But you cannot do it in a way that is rote or traditional, such that you think just by practicing this tradition, somehow you earn favor with God. That simply doesn't happen. And it comes back to the gospel. You cannot change God's view of you because how God views you is in Christ. And we need to also heed Christ's warning that when you do things like this, if you do choose for a spiritual reason to fast, and by the way, when we talk about fasting in the New Testament, it always accompanies prayer. That's the point of fasting. It's not just to make yourself suffer. It's to allow yourself more time. So I'm going to give up these meals because instead of meal prep and eating, I'm going to pray. So it's it's always connected to praying, more intense praying. And Matthew 6, verses 6 through 8, 16 through 18 says this, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. In other words, the, the Pharisees, the praise of man, hey, look, why are you all disheveled and, and walking like that while I'm fasting for the Lord? And Jesus says they're hypocrites. That's the reward in full, the praise of man. But he goes on to say, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Anoint your head. We don't do that. Basically, wash your hair, put on makeup, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so, again, for the Lord, for spiritual reasons, that's fine. Doesn't have to be Lent, it can be any time, and uh, we just got to be careful also that we don't do it for show, right? Not walking around to just try to display your holiness like the practice of an ashen cross uh, on your forehead. Question number two Will Judas be one of the 12 sitting next to Jesus? Matthew 19 28. And that says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, he also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we know that the twelve disciples, the original apostles, have a special place in the future kingdom of God, in the plan of God. And so Judas, who betrayed Jesus Christ, was one of those. Will he be sitting uh, alongside Jesus? The answer is no. And the answer is because Judas, as far as we can tell, uh, is not even in heaven. He is in hell. We do not see any repentance on the part of Jesus. Uh, we see worldly sorrow, which leads to worldly remorse. He did not go back to Jesus or the disciples to ask for forgiveness. There's no indication that he repented to God the Father. He actually sought appeasement through worldly means, financial means, giving the money back to the Jewish priests, and then he hung himself. And so clearly there was no indication of true repentance. And in fact, Matthew 26, 24, 
he says about the one who will betray him, which later on we find out is Judas, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Okay? So all signs point to Judas being in hell, uh, so he definitely will not be reigning alongside the throne of Christ. Who will then? Uh, as you know, that they cast lots, and in God's sovereignty, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. We don't know a lot about him. We do know he replaced him on the 12, so there were still 12 going through the book of Acts. Um, so most likely Matthias, there are some scholars that believe it will be the Apostle Paul. Uh, that's one of the things we aren't sure of, and so we'll just wait and see who's there. Okay? Question number three. Is it wrong? Is it wrong that I have an utter sense of contempt? Oh, sorry. Is it wrong that an utter sense of contempt is my immediate reaction when I hear heresy? or the name of my Lord being demeaned or dishonored? How should I confront these people when I encounter them? Should I encounter them? When we talk about heresy, and if you're not familiar with that term, uh, that is basically the blatant uh, false teaching, twisting of the gospel, teaching of wrong things, things are that are not true according to Scripture. Okay, Things like... Uh, Jesus was just a good man, a prophet, and not God. Or a big one is denying the Holy Trinity or things like that. Okay? And it can be even uh, basic things that you hear that are not as fundamental, right? Just practice living, like abortion is okay or things like that. Okay? Um, and that would not just be a politician saying that, for example. It would be someone claiming to being a mouthpiece of God claiming to be a Christian, a follower of God, uh, and saying these things. And so that's what we would call heresy. There are two general areas of heresy uh, or heretics that we would talk about. One would be someone who claims to be proclaiming the Word of God. And so that would be someone who's a false teacher. You, you're familiar, probably several come to mind. They're on television. They're, you know, falsely healing people, performing false miracles, things like that. Then there are those who would speak heresy who are followers of those people. And I don't mean like upper echelon, just average congregant in one of those churches or religions. And so they believe those things. So they're not really proclaiming it from a pulpit or anywhere. But as you talk to them, they just say, no, 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 that's not true. Jesus is not God, for example. Okay, So let me address those people because I think these are the type of people that we would encounter more. Just someone at work and then you find out, oh, you're a Christian, but then they believe totally false things. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warns Timothy of ungodly and unscrupulous men who will enter into people's lives and try to sway them and corrupt them. And his admonishment to Timothy in how to deal with this is first and foremost, he tells Timothy, live out the truth. So first, you, Timothy, you stick to the gospel. Before you address them, before you pull them out of the church, you live what you know to be true. And that's the first step for us as well. 
stick to what we know and understand by living out the truth in our own lives. Now, I want to read for you what Paul says leading up to that admonition and including it. 2 Timothy 3.12 through 15. And this is the, I start at verse 12 because this is the well-known verse. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First, what we need to understand is though there was a lot of persecution as people face around the world today just from atheists or people who have more liberal views on different things, Christians are persecuted. But more than today, at least more than today in America, a lot of the persecution that Christians faced in the early church was from other religions. And so that would help us understand why this is pertinent to this discussion. Heretics, okay? Verse 13, 2 Timothy 3. But evil men and impostors, there's a heretic, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. So, dealing with heresy begins with a life of godliness. What does that mean? It means a life that is reflective of the gospel. Live out the gospel. And when you live out the gospel, as we have seen recently in James, it demands an understanding that you too were once essentially in the category of heretic. And it was nothing you did, not your own merit, but there, but by the grace of God go I. So when we live out the gospel, we have to understand where we came from and who we are as the redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so you understand that you are now talking to someone who outside of the grace of God, you would potentially be like as well. This does not mean we uh, capitulate on the gospel, we bend the truth, but there is uh, humility uh, there, and so that addresses the idea of contempt. There is a passion and a love for truth and a desire that God is honored that should bother us when we hear heresy. But when we're talking about an individual person, there needs to be compassion and not just automatically chopping down in a rude way their heresy, but bringing them with grace, the truth of grace. After a list of ungodly vices in 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul writes this. So he lists all these sinful things that uh, characterize the world. And then he says, such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So there must be a humility and compassion for those who are deceived. Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48 is the passage in which we are told, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, remember what persecution largely was at that time. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes, this is huge, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you have love for those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Those were the most despised people in the society. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or unbelievers do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which goes back to loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. All of this is about our attitude because we don't want to sin against the Lord with anger, with judging. Having made sure your heart is right, you do need to correct people. You do need to confront them. You do so with the truth. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Because here's the thing. When, when we have anger, when, when we have contempt, we, we may not recognize it, so we definitely may not even see it or actually say it. But we think we're better than those people. But if we truly understand the gospel, you understand that you are not you as an individual. It is all Christ who makes you who you are. Okay? And so outside of heresy, this would apply to just unbelievers as well, just general unbelievers. Right? To not judge them, to have compassion on them, because we understand that we were them once. Now, if you're talking about someone who is spreading heresy within the church, the scriptures are also very clear that they are to be put out quickly and, if necessarily, violently. Because this is the bride of Christ, and we do not tolerate any portion of the bride of Christ being impure and essentially having adultery, and then inviting others to do the same. Okay? Titus 3, 10 through 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And so we approach them first and say, hey, is it true you said that? Is this what you mean? Why do you believe that? And if it's just like, oh, I was always taught that, and you show them Scripture, and they're like, oh, I didn't know that. I need to change my views and go tell people that I was wrong. That's different, of course. But if a wolf in sheep's clothing comes in and tries to cause problems, that needs to be dealt with. Okay? And so, yeah, I'll just, I'll just stop there. Uh, whether... Well, what I was thinking is, if, like, do we write letters to, like, Benny Hinn or something like that? Well, you could, um, but I don't know if it's going to do much good, okay? Um, so, yeah, graciously, lovingly, but with the truth, because they need Christ. Number four, are Christians called to forgive even without someone repenting to them? So someone has sinned against you. Do you forgive if they haven't repented to you? I do want to make a, a, a small correction, and this is nothing on against the person who asked this question. When we talk about repent, we, 
are never talking about person to person. We repent unto God. And so uh, what I assume this person is meaning is if the person does not fix the error, does not ask for forgiveness, does not change their ways, basically, do we forgive? Is our forgiveness based on the offender's actions or request for forgiveness? The answer is no. It is not based on that. We forgive regardless of what the offender has done or asked for. People have to be held accountable to their sins. It's very true. But we are not judge. God is. And what you need to understand is forgiveness on our part comes because we are forgiven. That what is what gives us the supernatural ability to forgive the offense. And let's be honest here. Oftentimes, what we feel like we can't forgive or we're, we feel compelled to forgive is not sin. It's just our feelings were hurt. The person didn't do anything objectively wrong. We were just offended in some way. And so we need to keep in mind, sin or not, we forgive not because the offender asked for forgiveness, not because they have changed their ways, but ultimately because you are forgiven. A great example of Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they asked for forgiveness? Because they felt bad? No, he goes on and says, they do not know what they are doing. How much further can you get from someone asking for forgiveness that they don't even realize what their actions are? Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Okay, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's Ephesians 4.32. So we forgive. Do forgive and forget? Probably impossible. Okay? We remember these things. But forgive and forget, I think, usually means, well, we don't hold a grudge, we don't hold it over them, we don't bring it up later on. Well, remember that time, right? We do that, right? Especially when we get in big arguments with people we're very close to, right? We bring up all this stuff. And then what's, let's be honest, what's your spouse's reaction? You said you forgave me for that. So that's the idea of forgive and forget. Not that you literally forget. How do you do that? Right? It's you don't bring things up. You don't hold a grudge. Now I do want to point out that forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. It is possible that the offender has not changed their ways and now being a friend with them, interacting with them can be dangerous to you. It can be harmful for you. It may be a situation where you are asked to flee temptation. Okay? There are certain times where it's like, I forgive him, but if I go to Thanksgiving dinner, I know he will hurt me again. So I cannot go. Now, if you're talking about two Christians, that's different. Okay? There needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be fellowship that is mended. All that to say, forgiveness is ultimately about your relationship with God, not others. 
As far as others are concerned, it's how you view them in Christ. Again, not holding their guilt over their heads, not engaging in bitterness, not dwelling on things, not fantasizing about revenge, not actually getting revenge, not actually going out and doing an eye for an eye, but I'm going to ghost them on my phone. I'm going to give them the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. I'm not going to support what they're doing. Right? We do these little petty things as acts of revenge, and we are not to do those things because forgiveness. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, as a believer, when you do not forgive, it affects your relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a bitterness, there's a disconnect, there's a grudge. You're not living in joy. You cannot truly say, I'm living out godly love. There is a problem there, so forgive. Question number five. Did the father forsake or reject the son on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, remember those famous words on the cross. Was the eternal fellowship between the father and the son torn that day? Or was Jesus directing those within earshot and us today to Psalm 22 and its fulfillment where those words come from? Psalm 22 verse 1, it's a a messianic psalm, a psalm that prophesies what will happen with Jesus Christ, okay? So was there a break in fellowship or was Jesus just quoting a psalm to show that he was fulfilling prophecy? Well, the answer is yes. He was doing both because the fulfillment of that prophecy was some sort of break in fellowship with God the Father. Here's the thing. When we talk about the cross, the whole point involves the wrath of God the Father coming upon Jesus Christ all at once because of God's holiness and God's hatred of sin. So did Christ take up our sins or didn't he? If he did then God the Father at that moment had to break fellowship with him to temporarily abandon him. And part of this question also asks, how does that bring me comfort? Because it is part of God truly paying the penalty for our sins. That our being out of fellowship with God could bring us into reconciliation. Now one argument against this is if God abandoned Jesus, how do I know as a Christian that he won't abandon me as a Christian? Because he abandoned Jesus. Because Jesus took the sins of the world on the cross. If he didn't, then you should be very afraid that God the Father might abandon you because Jesus never truly took your sins on the cross. Now, you've heard it before, you've heard me say it before, that part of what Satan was doing in the wilderness I referred to earlier, right? He was tempting Jesus. If you do this, just deny the Father. I'll give you all of this. All of this I can give to you, right? What he was trying to do was to break up the Holy Trinity. And if you break up the eternal fellowship of the Holy Trinity, then we don't even know what would happen. How, how, what would happen? I don't know how that would work even physically, right? Would the world just cease to exist? Would it implode? Would it ex- explode? Would it just go back to nothingness? We don't know because it is within that trinity that 
this world is sustained. So you bring that into what we're talking about. Well, how come that didn't happen? Because this fellowship was planned and was part of the plan of God. And all we can do is take it as far as Scripture tells us, and I can go no further. I can't explain it. I can tell you what happened. Because that word, forsaken, means abandoned, cut ties with. I can't explain the mystery of how that is true any more than I can explain how my Savior is 100% two distinct beings, man and God. Or how I worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but I am not uh, pluralistic. I worship one God. I can't explain it. I tell you what the Scriptures say, and that's as far as I can go. And that's the thing, right? A lot of times we're confused or have trouble with doctrines like this uh, because we have to take them at face value and we can't really logically make sense of it. I mean, even eternality. Everything we know has a beginning, even the universe, we are told. But it's, we know that God always existed and that we accept that, but that messes with your mind a little bit. Because we just think, well, someone had to make him. Was there a bigger guy? And you say, no. He is God. He always was God. He always existed. That's it. Okay? We don't have to understand it in our finite minds. We can't understand it in our finite minds. All right? Question number six. How do I know if I truly care about my local church, and what are some practical ways to gauge my love for them? Well, this is it, isn't it? This is the lifelong pursuit second only to the love of God of the Christian. And so it's a lifelong study. And so I'm going to spend the next four hours answering this uh, question. No, I mean, it's just, it's pursuing love. I'm going to try to give you some practical ways to gauge that. that. Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice, love does not replace or negate the other commandments, it sums them up. In other words, you love and you gauge your love by obeying all the other commandments, we call them, as far as other people are concerned, the one another's, right? Love one another, submit to one another, anything that says one another, how we are to interact with other believers. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10 is what I just read. We see three things here. Forgiving. We just talked about that. You get that. Don't hold a grudge. Don't view them differently. Don't fail to move past anything. Secondly, you see hospitality. That's more than just inviting people into your home, but that's the main gist of it. It is taking care of people. And it says with joy, not complaining, not out of obligation, with joy. 
And then serving one another. We've all been given a spiritual gift. Use it. Serve one another. There's one, one of the one another's. Oftentimes, in our practical Christianity, we stop at serving. Right? We serve. I did my part. I'm supposed to serve. I'm going to go do this. It's easy to serve the church as a whole. It's easy to show up early. It's easy to have rehearsal. It's easy to fold things and set up things and shake hands and bring a meal or send a gift card. But it takes love and commitment to serve individuals according to their needs, to get to know them, to get into their lives and to serve them sacrificially. That takes love. And it shows what you engages. How willing are you to go all the way? Right? To be woken up in the middle of the night. To drive all the way out there to visit. To actually sacrifice you wanting to buy that thing that's a luxury and instead spend the money to buy something that they need. Okay? And again, you have to gauge your heart. Are you just doing it out of obligation? Are you doing it? What's your motivation? Are you doing it because you want them to look at you better so that they owe you, so that whatever it is. And we know that sin always creeps in, and so oftentimes our motivation is multifaceted. Uh, but are you doing this purely out of love for that person, and or do you find joy in it regardless of whether they even want it, whether they respond or not, whether they say thank you, whether they're grateful, if it's just purely out of love, sacrificial, unconditional love? Question number seven, did Jesus go to hell? 1 Peter three eighteen through 19, notice that these spirits are in prison. In Luke eight thirty one, the prison is called the abyss. And in Jude 6, it is eternal bonds. 1 Peter three eighteen through 19 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Then verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That is a big question. Where was Jesus between the time of his death and his resurrection? A lot of people take logic, and I think we have already established that that's very helpful. It's a God-given gift, but can be very dangerous. Logic, with some understanding of Scripture, takes us into... Well, if he was punished for our sins, he must have gone to hell. Okay? And then you come to this passage, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, and say, well, here it is. It says he went to hell. So, what we need to understand first is this prison, where the spirits were and are imprisoned, is not eternal hell. It is not the eternal lake of fire. This is a holding place until eternity. It is technically not hell. It is hell-like. It is not pleasant. But it is not hell as we know when we say eternal hell. Okay? You can still say that. right? When an unbeliever dies, they go to eternal hell. right? Even though there are two different places. Um, it's same as any unbeliever. They are not cast into eternal hell. 
the lake of fire, until the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20. Then they are sent into eternity, even though their destiny is already secured. Okay? So I was going to make a comparison to jail and prison, but I think I have a misunderstanding of those two things. But you understand, right? There's a holding place, even though they're declared guilty, and then they get on that bus, and then they're in prison forever, whatever it is. In fact, Jude 6, um, Jude chapter 1, verse 6, there's only one chapter there. Jude 6 makes that clear. And angels who did not keep their domain, but abandoned their proper abode. So these are fallen angels. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. Why? For the judgment of the great day that is coming. They are in some sort of shackles. There are some who are imprisoned. There are some who are not imprisoned and they're roaming free on earth wreaking havoc. But they are in some sort of bondage until the great white throne of judgment until where they're cast into the lake of fire. And this, this two different places is similar to believers as well. Believers who die before the end times, we live eternally in the new earth. But we, where do we go when we die now? A holding place we call heaven. Right? And then there's a time when we will all descend and then inhabit the new earth. So we too, believers too, have a holding place before going to what will be our eternal, uh, final joy and place of eternity. Okay? So that being said, Jesus did not go to this place where people are being punished that for eternity. He's going to this holding cell, but not for punishment, for the proclamation of victory. So he went and said, you are in this holding place and your destiny is now secure because I have been victorious on the cross. Now something we need to keep in mind is that Satan is not the ruler of hell. God is. In fact, Satan wants nothing to do with hell because he knows that's his eternal punishment. Now, we say, as we've seen recently in James, that it is from hell to indicate the evil and wickedness and the sinfulness of something, right? But God is the God of hell, and he can go there without being punished. Weak analogy, but does not a warden go often to a prison? He's not a prisoner. He goes there. He is in charge of the prisoner, as can a lawyer as can a judge, as can the victim of the person in the prison, right? So God can go to heaven, or can go to hell, rather, and not for the sake of punishment. And so I think sometimes we get confused because we think if anyone enters into hell, they get sucked into this vortex and they're just burning and punished. That's not it, okay? This is a place that God has created, and he has free reign to come and go uh, as he pleases. All right. Let's move on. Question number eight. Actually, I think we only have time for one. Let me look through this. All right, I do this every time. We're going to go over. Okay, question number eight. Why do you say to an unbeliever, what do you say to an unbeliever who asks why God sends people to hell for all eternity when that person didn't choose to be born and only live for a relatively short period of time compared to eternity? The punishment seems more severe than the crime. While I know that God is completely justified in doing this, I've had this question come to mind myself many times. 
So I can only imagine that an unbeliever might ask the same question. So essentially the, 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 the question is asking, well, I didn't choose to be born. I didn't ask to be born, so why should I be held accountable for my sins? Romans 9, 20 through 22, again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but that's basically the idea is how dare you ask God? Does the piece, does the lump of clay ask the potter, why did you make me into a bowl and him into a pot? Right? Why am I a, 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 a toilet back then and this guy's holding, you know, extra virgin olive oil? No pot does that. And the idea is, and that's how, that's how Paul shuts down the question. He doesn't answer it. He says, how dare you ask that question? And so it's interesting that people say that, right? Let's say it's an unbeliever talking to a believer, and they say, well, I didn't ask to be born, so how is that fair? Have you realized that for an adult, it's always within the context of morality that they don't want to follow? It's always in the context of things like hell and punishment and submitting to God. It's similar with children. Right? They say, well, I didn't ask to be part of this family. It's when you, want, you make them do something they don't want to do. Right? Eat the green beans. I didn't ask. In this family, we eat our vegetables. Well, I didn't ask. You know, it's never something good. That same person never says, why do I get to enjoy this sunshine? I didn't ask to be born. Why did grandpa leave me most of his, the inheritance of $5 million? I didn't ask to be his grandson, right? It's always within the context of, let's be honest, a juvenile excuse against their creator. And as far as the punishment fitting the crime, it doesn't make sense when we compare it to the American justice system, modern American justice system. I'm choosing my words very carefully because there are places in the world where petty theft, the, the punishment is death. And I have very smart, educated friends who are immigrants from those places and said, America will be much better if we did that too, okay? And so we, we, we try to think of justice when we think of that, right? You're going to punish someone for eternity and they only lived for 100 years and you're going to punish them forever for a hundred years of sins against God. Punishment doesn't fit the crime. Plus, they didn't ask to be born. And here's the thing. We cannot take our human or American sense of justice and judge God's actions by it. Because when it comes to American justice, the punishment is based on what law have you broken? You'd be shocked Right? If you threw a piece of trash out on the 101 and they drag you to jail and the lawyer says, well, you know, if you make a plea, you only get 20 years, right? You're like, no, that's the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But when it comes to God, the issue is not what law you have broken. The issue is whose law you have broken. And any sin against the holy creator God is punishable by eternity. Okay? Question nine. Can you address Christians borrowing, saving, and investing money? Um, he mentions a few verses that seem to contradict each other on this. Psalm 15.5, Matthew 6.19-20 through 20 says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Proverbs 21.20 20. um, 
also says treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, so it seems to say you should amass treasures on earth. Romans 13.8 says, oh, no one, anything. So mortgages, credit scores, and financial investing seem to be a pretty important component of financial responsibility, though financial responsibility, though, which is part of good stewardship. We are to be good stewards, and we're to be good stewards of God's money. And you even have the parable of the guy who was punished because he buried the one talent, right, and gave the slave master or his boss one talent back, and the people who invested and got more were rewarded. Now, we understand, of course, that is not talking about money, but it's talking about spiritual fruit and godliness. But we see that there are principles throughout Scripture that tell us to invest, okay, even financially. The Proverbs praises the person and contrasts the person who saves diligently with the person who is a fool. But then you have Matthew 6, 19, which is do not lay up your treasures in, on earth, lay up your treasures in heaven, which I just referenced a week or two ago in talking about not being friends with the world. So which is it? The Bible gives a lot of guidance on borrowing and saving. And in fact, none of the verses mentioned, and many more I could mention, do not contradict each other, but they actually fall under that guidance. Now, the key of Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 20, is the next verse, verse 21, that tells us it's all about our heart. You can save up money here for the sake of the kingdom, right? I don't want to spend on that. I want to save up because I know my friend's going out on the mission field, that kind of thing. Now, I understand we are, I understand I'm not saying we use every cent for missionaries and the church and things like that, but that's the idea there. Versus storing up treasures in heaven and having the wrong heart and saying, I need to not support my friends on the mission field because I want this thing. Okay, you see the difference there? And the point of that passage is not so much don't save, don't have a mortgage, don't have a bank account, don't save up for retirement. The point of that is our focus should be eternity and to have the right perspective. And the beauty of that is storing up treasures in heaven is just a small percentage of is, has anything to do with money. It has to do with godliness, loving God, loving others, obeying. But when you're only focused on work, 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 save, 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 you have no time to serve. You have no desire to sacrifice, okay? So the point of Matthew 6 is to make sure you're focused on investing in the kingdom and again, if you're so involved in saving money here, then you won't have time to serve and give liberally and sacrificially. With that in mind, we understand that Proverbs 21.20 does not contradict that, but balances that, okay? Treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a fool devours it. If you are able, God does not want you to just live paycheck to paycheck with the bare necessities. He desires you to use what he has given him, given you joyfully and thankfully. We should have some wiggle room. There are people who don't. You're not in sin for that. 
But if you're living paycheck to paycheck because you say, well, I got $5,000 in this paycheck and I only need 3000 for rent and living expenses and you max it out. You say, I got 2000 left. I'm going to find out. I'm finally going to eat at that restaurant. I'm finally going to buy that thing. Finally, I mean, that's not, that's not being a good steward. Well, I'm not storing it up for treasures in heaven because the Bible said so. So I'm just going to use it all. Well, that's friendship with the world. Okay? Why do, should we have wiggle room? Again, for the kingdom. To not be able to say, well, oh, I never knew that existed. New iPhone came out. Well, wiggle room. I have money to afford that. No. It's so you can see someone, a Christian in need, and say, hey, I got wiggle room. I got money for you. That's a kingdom mentality. Romans 13.8 is simply, oh, no one anything, is simply saying don't borrow in a way that the lender controls you. Okay, the Bible is very clear that borrowing is fine within our financial system. A mortgage would probably be the biggest amount of money most people would borrow. Okay? You say, well, then the, the bank controls me because if I can't pay the mortgage, then they take my house. They control my life. That's the point. Don't get stuck into a mortgage that you can't pay. That's what the Bible prohibits. It might also help to understand that back when this was written, the interest rates were up to 50%. Now, some of you, because you have lived in a financially reckless place, the only loan you can get is about that sort of interest rate. Okay? I have a relative like that. It's crazy. And so you can dial that back. You can work with people with a kingdom mentality and fix that. I don't know how. I'm not the person to ask about that, but there are ways. Okay. Um, so again, the Bible doesn't prohibit borrowing or lending, but it does prohibit lending in a corrupt and greedy way. The Bible is very clear that Christians should not lend to other Christians with interest. And if it is a need, the Christian should not lend at all. They should just give expecting nothing in return. You have to understand this principle, okay? And yes, that changes everything. To save up not just for a comfortable retirement, but to save up so that you can help other Christians in need. Now, if someone comes to you and says, I know you have a little wiggle room, I really need to send my kids to band camp, that's not a need, Textbooks, yes. Shoes, yes. Air Jordans, no. Okay? You see what I'm saying? We know the difference. We got to be careful. Okay? Matthew 5.42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Luke 6, if you lend, verses 34 and 35, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. 
Okay? So live within your means. The reality in our country is if you uh, don't have a mortgage, you're going to be paying rent anyways. So you need to pay to live. So within, within your means, again. Again, don't get locked in a mortgage that's beyond your, what you make. Right? Legitimate banks have learned that lesson from the subprime mortgage problem we had. Remember that? And so that's why when you, when you just get a basic mortgage, you have like, f- clear your schedule. Okay? There's a lot of paperwork because they're like, we need to make sure, we need to see your pay stubs. They're making sure that you can pay the mortgage. How much more should you yourself make sure that you are living within your means? And I'll just close this question with this. You know, so many times we think like, look at our, ourselves and we say, oh, if only I had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars, man, that missionary, he wouldn't have to raise support. If I, if I, got, if I just got that raise, right, I would do this. Stop thinking about what you would do if. Start thinking about what you should be doing with the money that you have in your pocket and your bank accounts right now. Good stewardship involves giving, so make sure that all of it, in all of it, you're focused on the Lord. Be careful. None of what I've said is an excuse for greed or friendship with the world. And Matthew chapter 6 makes it very clear It's one of the few clear passages that tell us this specific issue is a gauge of your spiritual life. And it's money. Money is set up as a direct reflection of how much you love God and how holy you are. That same passage talks about you can't serve two masters. The other master is money. That's what you choose for analogy, not idols, not family, not money. And then the passage goes on to say your light, it gives insight into your soul, and it's either filled with light or filled with darkness, again, within the context of money. So there's a clear connection to your view of money and potentially your soul being filled with darkness. We have to take it Seriously, okay? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you so much for this opportunity and for people who desire to live godly lives. I know that a lot of what we heard here is difficult, especially this last question. May we be people who are willing to excel for the sake of your glory and having a kingdom mentality. Continue to give us a desire to learn more about your word, to seek whether from the pastor or others or just in our own study of the word, the right answers so that we would stand faithfully on the truth. Use us for your glory in Jesus' name.